I read an interesting story about a French village that got sacked during World War II. Lush with vegetation and well-drawn water, the small locale in northern France was ripe for the picking of the Axis forces. Though they occupied the houses and public buildings as their own for a season, when they found themselves pushed back by America and her allies, the German troops just simply ravaged the city. So after the war ended, the locals rebuilt, and after restoring everything they could, they gathered near the city square for an afternoon of celebration and then rededication of their small town. What about the fountain? An elderly man asked. He pointed to the large water feature prominently poised in the roundabout near the main thoroughfare. What about it? The local priest replied. It had been the church's role to maintain the fountain and its nearby landscaping. They had probably done so for decades, probably even centuries. The statue of Jesus with outstretched arms had, in their mind, welcomed people into their village, and they took pride in presenting him well. Jesus' hands, another person inquired. They're missing, another observed. Though others hadn't yet noticed that Jesus' hands were knocked off at his wrists, thanks to the three from the crowd, it was now obvious to everyone present. He doesn't have any hands, a child added. Where are the hands? Murmurs began to crescendo. The truth is that the hands of Jesus went missing when the statue was knocked from its base by retreating soldiers. In that instant, the entire centuries-old concrete creation shattered. Most of the pieces were recovered, and Jesus was painstakingly put back together. A close look revealed cracks and small fault lines that were visible throughout his entire body. The image was imperfectly perfect, the most obvious flaw being that the craftsmen were never able to locate either one of his hands. So there was a pause, a long quiet, the kind you can feel. Then, finally, okay, this Jesus has no hands, the priest conceded. But we can't have a Jesus with no hands. No, this doesn't make any sense, another onlooker added, expressing their discontent. Finally, the priest continued. This Jesus has no hands. He has no hands but yours. Now, think about that. No hands but yours. In the previous six or seven talks, we really talked about the idea that we live the presence of Christ in the world today. We, we are his presence. We are his hands. But living his presence isn't just about being here, nor is it simply about just doing the things that he would do. More, more than that, it's doing the things he would do in the manner he would do it. That is, more than simply doing what he would do, we want to do it like he would do it. You've probably heard that saying, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. That's what this is, but it doesn't just include the words we say. It involves every single one of the works we do. So how, how would he do it? That, that's a far deeper question than just what would Jesus do? You see, it's not just what would Jesus do. It's, it's what would Jesus do? Oh, and, and how would he express that? Well, in 2 Timothy 1.7, we find a great outline. In, in that passage, Paul encourages one of his disciples, Timothy, to fulfill his own ministry and to walk in his calling just as really we're seeking to do with these concepts that we're teaching on the podcast and in the, the recent book that's coming out, the Life Lift book. Paul reminds Timothy, he says this, God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power, love, and a sound mind. Uh, let me like walk you through them. Like power, Paul reminded Timothy that there would come a day in which the church has a form of godliness, meaning it looks right, but it actually denies his power. That's in 2 Timothy 3, 5. And he says to avoid that trap. After all, it requires supernatural power to do the supernatural tasks that we're called to, and nobody really wants to live normal. So power, love. Uh, Paul says that the greatest, even more important than faith, is love. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then sound mind. He talks about that concept. Um, earlier in the series of talks, we discussed that we have the mind of Christ. That was in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And Paul encourages us to let the same mind be in us that was in Christ, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He encourages us to allow his thoughts to reign rather than our own. And in other places, he actually talks about taking every thought captive to Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We're told to be transformed. I mentioned this in the last episode. Be transformed into that maros, that unique design we have, by, first of all, renewing our minds. That's in Romans 12.1 and 2. So here, here's what I want to do. I, I want to talk about this idea for the rest of this talk about love, uh, that, that power of love, the second one, power, love, and sound mind. And then the talks after that, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do like a couple weeks, a couple episodes on power and a couple on sound mind, on discipline. So that's where this is going. Okay. So first of all, love. Love is the environment that we do everything in. First Corinthians 13 is noted as the love chapter and it gets massive airplay at weddings. Now, Here's my thought. It's an appropriate venue to read those verses, but the context of that passage, 1 Corinthians 13, it has nothing to do with marriage whatsoever. Let me show you what it does have something to do with, though. 1 Corinthians 12, it speaks about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, about spiritual gifts, as does 1 Corinthians 14. Right in the middle, we find this incredible passage which describes the tone of ministering via the supernatural gifts. That, that is, the context for using the power God gave us to express the presence of Jesus in this world, it's love. Now, now look at 1 Corinthians 12.4. Paul says this. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. He, he then explains that there are different kinds of working, but the same God works in all of them. That's in 12.6. Then he outlines a couple of the gifts. That's in 1 Corinthians 12.7-11. through 11. He likens the church to a human body verses 12 and 13, and then he reminds us that we each need each other as much as the various parts of our bodies need each other. That's verse 14 and following. Now, I'm going to circle back to that image um, probably in several weeks, so just kind of hang on to that. Here's what I want you to see, though. At the conclusion of chapter 12, after telling us these few observations about spiritual gifts, Paul says this. He says, first of all, desire the greater gifts. That's in 1231. Second, he says, exercise all of the gifts, even the greater ones, in a greater way. That's in chapter 13, verse 1. That second point about exercising the gifts, your calling, your destiny, the expression of Christ working through you, that leads us into the love chapter. Now, I actually have the entire chapter, and I'm going to put it in the show notes and I'm going to read it right here, and I'm going to highlight several things as I go through it. And in fact, in a couple of weeks when I get to the spiritual gifts in these series of talks, 
I'll come back and mention some of these. But but I want you to notice this. The entire outline here that Paul gives us is talking about these gifts and using these gifts, using your calling, using your destiny, expressing it via love. Okay, the context for using the power God gave us to express the presence of Jesus to the world is supernatural love. Here's the passage. It's the English Standard Version. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, that's a gift, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, that's a gift. And understand all mysteries, that's a gift. And all knowledge, another gift. And if I have all faith, the gift of faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give, that's a gift. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body, martyrdom, to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, here's the part that you know really well. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, notice Paul's going to come back to some of the gifts. As for prophecies, that's a gift. They'll pass away. As for tongues they will cease. As for knowledge, that's another gift. It will pass away. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, Paul's right there. Notice that Paul just said prophecy is partial, knowledge is partial, and how many people do you know that use those gifts and act like they've got a corner on the market and know and express everything perfectly? Paul says, no, 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 even that, even the best expression that we have is partial. Now, Paul continues, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now now capture that mirror image because we've talked about that for several weeks now. Now I know in part, but but then I shall know fully, even as I am been known fully. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, after referencing these gifts, uh, in the very next sentence, Paul admonishes us. Now, now we're going to 1 Corinthians 14.1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. His position seems to be something like this. If you can't do what you're doing in a loving way, no matter how super spiritual the expression of your calling is, then just don't do it. In other words, let's make this very, very practical. Uh, Have you, just just questions for you. Have you ever been nervous when you heard people praying in tongues? Uh, What about when someone stands to deliver a word of prophecy? Has that ever created any feelings of anxiety in you? Like you're going to be found out or caught or like embarrassed? Have you been so unsettled about some of the gifts mentioned in the New Testament that you actually avoid being around them? Um, How about preaching? Have you ever felt condemned rather than gifted with words of life? Or when someone has given you something or served you in some way, did they ever make you feel guilty as if you had put them out when they chose to do something for you? It might be, 
And in any of those instances, just just maybe, like not trying to condemn or put something on anyone, but but it might just be that they didn't understand the biblical paradigm for using the gifts. I I know for years, like I I didn't, and and I I know too that I I still do it imperfectly, or or it could be that the person did as I've done before, like they just shared their gift. They didn't necessarily share the gift from the context of love. Now, Jesus told the disciples something related to this in John 15, 9. He said this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And, and then he says this, John 15, 9 again, Remain in my love. There is this picture. I'm going to put it in the show notes. I've been really kind of labeling it and sketching it and adding to it throughout this entire series of talks. I've labeled several arrows. I've denoted that Jesus reveals the Father, that Jesus reveals us. We've highlighted that the Father sent Jesus, then the Father sent us. Uh, We've mentioned that the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus, and then his fullness dwells in us. So, I'm going to show you the picture again, and I want to add something new to it. And, and I want to show you, like, I'm just going to put this circle around all of it and create this environment around all of it and just show you that love is the context for everything we do. Love is the environment for any kind of biblical ministry, but, but really any kind of biblical-based life. Let me tell you what I mean, because I, I really think that this love thing, it is part of our full potential. Uh, over the past year, I've, I've really pondered the verse 1 John 4, 18 over and over. Like, like it's just been one that I'm trying to implement in my interpersonal relationships, in my writing, um, from any stage or platform where I get to share or speak. Here are two translations. Let, let me just read it. There's no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's the English Standard Version. Uh, let, me, let me give you the Passion Translation. It's a more modern translation. Love never brings fear, for fear is always related to punishment. But love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection. Now, Here's what I want to do. For the next few minutes, I want to highlight three concepts from that verse. Here's the concepts I want you to listen for. Number one, perfect love. Number two, cast out fear. And number three, fear reveals that we've not yet been perfected in love. So let's let's just walk through them. First, let's define what that perfect concept means. The word used in this passage, it doesn't refer to the idea that we'll always love each other without flaw. Rather, it suggests that we will love each other maturely. Okay, so even like in marriage or in in the closest human interactions that we have with best friends, soulmates, these these vibrant connections, it's not going to be that we're always going to be perfect and execute the love without flaw. It means that we'll do it maturely. We actually referenced that word in, I think it was talk number five, um, when I talked about this concept that Jesus in the world and living up to your full potential and Paul talking about everyone being presented perfect in Christ. Paul used the same word in Colossians 1. It was in Colossians 1.28. Every man complete, perfect in Jesus was his goal. 
John places that same word here. The word translated is perfect. It's the Greek word teleos, which again means reaching full potential or fulfilling the purpose for which it was created. So in the same way that Paul longed for his congregation to live their purpose, John wants us to love our purpose. That is, he wants our love to be whole, complete, full of the divine. And since Christ indwells us in his fullness, that is our potential to deliver the very heart of the Father to the world in which we live. What does that love look like? Well, well, a teleos love, it pushes fear out. It makes massive space for grace. Um, per 1 Corinthians 13, just inserting those verses on it, Telios love hopes for the best, believes in the best, and never fails, even when the person being loved clearly falters. In fact, that's when you need Telios love the most. Like, that's when the demand is placed on it. In, in fact, this love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, keeps no record of wrongs at all. It doesn't keep a list of you owe me because I did, you know, it's, it actually endures and abounds all the more aggressively when sin is present. That's what Romans 6, 1 says, that where sin abounded, grace superabounded even more. That leads me to the second observation. Let's discuss what cast out fear means. John tells us that mature love, the love that reaches its full potential, teleos love, it dominates fear. It doesn't incite fear or insecurity, it eliminates it. As such, teleos love, it makes people feel, here, here's a great word, safe. So I reviewed several translations to see how they communicate the term cast out fear because it perfect love cast out fear. That's 1 John 4.18. Uh, here's four ways that translators describe what perfect love does. I'll, I'll tell you what it, what it is, and I'll give you the translation so you can deep dive and look it up if you want to. Uh, the, the NIV says, it drives out fear. Uh, the New Living Translation expels all fear. Uh, the English Standard Version casts out fear. Um, the International Standard Version, that's kind of an obscure one, banishes fear. So here's the words again. Drives out expels, casts out, banishes. In other words, Telios love is strong. And here's how intensely it creates security. The same word used to cast out fear, it is the same verbiage used throughout the New Testament to describe exactly how Jesus treated demons. When he bumped into them, they had no choice but to leave. He expelled them. He forced them to go. He eliminated them. And that is an incredible analogy, not even an analogy, like it's just a one-to-one -one same word, mature love, the God kind of love, the teleos love, it does the exact same thing to condemnation, to fear, to shame. Perfect love drives fear away with that same passion. Fear has no choice but to leave when people are loved in this way. So, you know, you know, you look at that graphic that I put in the show notes. Let me add something to it. I'm, I'm going to add fear to that picture. And I want you to notice this. Fear doesn't exist inside the boundaries of perfect love. Okay. Now, pause, step back, and do a heart check. That is the exact opposite of what many people experience when they come in contact with the church, right? Uh, rather than driving fear away from people, especially like people that know that they messed up or, or 
in a relationship, uh, in marriage, in parenting, ra- rather than expelling fear as if it was a demon and then communicating to the person in the relationship, hey, c- come in close. Like, tell me what's really happening. We, we often invite fear and then we place it on that person, the offending person, like a cloak of shame. Now, I know I've done it in parenting. I've done it in preaching. I've done it in relationships. We, we often like it when others have a, in our minds, healthy measure of fear because that allows us to control the interaction and maintain the upper hand. We're afraid that if they don't experience some degree of fear or if they don't have some degree of control, they might not see how desperately they need grace. But think practically about the environment which surrounded Jesus. Uh, Tax collectors, they not only felt comfortable talking with him, they felt confident enough in his love to invite their wayward friends to a party at which he would be present. You can find that in Matthew 9, 9 following. Uh, women who earned their money in licentious ways, they knew he would receive them. They were so certain they would be accepted by him that they actually barged into dinners where they weren't even invited. Luke 7.36 uh, Lepers, people that the law demanded stay away from others, they actually approached Jesus so that he might touch them. That's Mark 1.40 uh, Roman soldiers, those who occupied the Jewish areas like warlords, keeping Jesus and his people in physical subservience, They were able to look beyond the us versus you dilemma and then actually approach Jesus for personal needs. It's Matthew 8, 5. Jesus rewarded their great faith. He honored them. Um, People who were considered, here's kind of the Old Testament biblical word, unclean and excluded from the temple. Um, Example, like the woman with the flow of blood. And, And people who were considered to be ceremonially so unclean that they would make others ceremonially, religiously unclean by touching them, they boldly moved through crowds and they actually grabbed and lunged for Jesus. It's Mark 5.25. They knew in doing so, they knew they would be embraced. They, they, They weren't afraid. And religious leaders approached him too. This included men like Jairus, whose daughter was at death's door in Mark 5.22. He abandoned protocol, and that ruler of the synagogue actually knelt before Jesus publicly, imploring him, begging him to visit. And and then there's also Pharisees like Nicodemus in John 3.1. And you think about this, are these the people who feel welcome near us? And then you ask the question, like, what about inside the four walls of a church? Or would these people be afraid to approach us, me, you, because we've not been perfected in love? You see, love is more important, that kind of love, than any gift, any calling, any expression that you have. Because if we don't love people, the gifts we have will actually push them away. On the other hand... If love draws them in, we create an environment in which the gifts can actually effectively serve the other people, and they're able at that point to receive. Make sense? Well, let me give you the third concept here. Um, let, let's discuss why people feel afraid. That, that is um, the difference in Jesus' presentation than the stereotypical way people often view. Uh, let me just insert the word church here, but you could even say like church people. Uh, Okay, John, 
He spent three years with Jesus, and he was present at all of those encounters, those examples that I just gave you, and he provides us with a clue. Uh, you know, He was there when all those, quote, tax collectors and sinners and other shady people, <laughs> shady like us, approached Jesus, and he's the one that says, Telios love expels fear. He gives us a great clue of why people are afraid. He says it like this. 1 John 4, 18, second half of the verse. Perfect love casts out fear. Here it is. Because fear involves punishment. In each of those instances above that I just gave you, people who approached Jesus, they knew they'd find themselves pulled closer rather than pushed away and punished, regardless of how big or horrific the issue was. They didn't need to self-protect. They didn't need to preserve their dignity. They didn't need to hide behind a veil because Jesus elevated them, even in that state, higher than they'd ever been. In another verse in the same chapter, 1 John four twelve. so just kind of a few, six verses up before he says, perfect love, cast out fear because fear involves punishment. John actually writes this, no one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Notice what he says. Even though none of us have physically seen our Redeemer, we tangibly experience the complete manifestation of who he is when we encounter unconditional teleos love from another human. That is when we feel safe to be completely exposed and totally vulnerable. Only that kind of love works. In fact, that is the kind of love that shreds fear and shame, truly breathing life into people. Imperfect, immature love, it does the exact opposite. It instills fear, it creates hiding, it empowers shame, it focuses on the rules rather than the relationship, it values written letters and legalism over love and action. Now, I've got another image. I'm going to put it here in the show notes again. I want you to check that out. Um, we can walk in great power, and we can walk with incredible discipline. Those were the other two factors, you know, power, love, and sound mind. So we can walk in power. We can walk in sound mind discipline, so the first and the third. But if we don't pursue the path of intentional love, people, again, will feel pushed away rather than pulled in close. We'll come across legalistic, hyper-judgy. Now, now think about think about this. Um, Jesus wasn't legalistic, uh, nor did he diminish the definition of holiness in any way. In, in fact, you might actually say this: he actually elevated, he lifted up the expression of holiness while simultaneously reaching deeper into the pit to rescue people than anyone ever dreamed possible. I mean, do you see the extreme of that? Like he can go higher towards the grandiose nature of purity and also simultaneously go deeper into the pit. Now, I, I've learned that some of the biggest offenders of loving people imperfectly are the most oblivious to it. Uh, they use pop psychology. They use well-worn phrases to mask the dysfunction. They use phrases like boundaries and i mean and you could just go on and on their stance has the appearance of wisdom that's what paul says in colossians 2:23 but it has no value no ability to manage the flesh and that includes their own flesh as well as the people and the flesh of the people that they only feel they can control with judgmental sentiments in other words imperfect love it looks smart it sounds intelligent but it has no place in the kingdom of God. 
perhaps that leads us to maybe just as we conclude with this, this is why Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples by the way that you love. That's in John 13, 34. Love communicates something that preaching, relevant songs, spiritual gifts, supernatural empowerment, walking in your calling, expressing and doing like grandiose, huge, massive things can't. Love is the greatest apologetic. It is the strongest argument to an unbelieving world. And it creates sacred space where much needed ministry, much needed service, much needed life giving, reaching out and connecting and pulling other people in close happens. Do you see? My prayer for you as I sign off every single week in the same very similar way is so simple today it's for you it's for me and it is this may the lord bless you may the lord keep you may the lord continue to cause his grace of radical telios favor upon you and may that perfect love find its full expression in you so that that love cast out fear off of others and it just removes a cloak of shame it removes a cloak of condemnation that they feel and they sense that they are being pulled in close because your expression of the highest purity of God is going to go higher than it's ever gone but simultaneously your ability to reach and to touch anyone in any kind of pit is going to go deeper than it's ever gone because those two realities are not at odds. Grace, peace, express the love. Shalom.